I want to take a second and, <clears throat> and pray for a couple of things. One is um, those who have uh, faced the challenges of these storms the last few days, our friends and neighbors and communities near us, and so we certainly want to be lifting them up, uh, encouraging them. I know there have been plenty of people who have uh, probably been up all night um, recovering from that and helping others recover from that, friends and family, and so we want to pray for them. And then um, I just got back from a, uh, uh, taking a group of students to Washington, D.C., and uh, you, you may have already, you may be aware of this, but we kind of have a divided nation uh, right now. And uh, I would say D.C. Is a, is a house divided. I'm just getting to experience even a, a good friend of mine um, at, the, um, at the Jefferson Memorial itself, afraid to talk openly about, uh, with the students about her faith and her beliefs because uh, she lives there now and is afraid it might cost her a job or a position or something like that to talk openly at the Jefferson Memorial. Um, Jefferson would not be pleased to know um, that that was the state that someone was afraid to talk openly about their beliefs um, in that place. And so it just struck me as something that we need to be praying for today. So, um, so if you will join me, let's quickly pray for both of those. Father, we know that you are a good God, a God who loves us, um, as we'll talk about today. God, we, um, we pray that the conversation today would, would in fact, um, reflect your glory. And, uh, and Lord, we ask that you would step in, as, as only you can, to comfort and to help and to aid um, through your power. Lord, with those who are dealing with the recovery from storms and the tragedies involved in that. And, and then, Lord, um, that you would, um, you would fulfill your will um, in regards to our nation, um, to the government. Um, God, I, just, um, I know we're, we're really just watching the world be the world. Um, we're watching a broken philosophy trying to make something right, and it's just going to fail over and over again. And so, God, I thank you that we have had the truth revealed and that, that we get to engage with it in a new way and that our faith and hope and trust is in you. And I pray we would carefully avoid the temptation to look for saviors or gods or temples any place but with you. Um, and I ask this in the name of your magnificent son. Amen. Um, okay, so as we are in John chapter 12, Paul, um, last week, um, talked us through, continued the conversation, especially along the question of what, what are we supposed to do with this Jesus person? What are we supposed to do with Jesus? And, and, and certainly that has been the conversation that's been ongoing and really reaches an apex where we are in chapter 12 today. It's going to really reach kind of a, a high point of, of truly a line being drawn in the sand um, in regard to today. Uh, that's going uh, to be part of it. One of the things that was good about getting to listen to Paul's sermon, and our, the sermons are online, um, and so to getting to listen to Paul's sermon as I'm walking around Washington, D.C., was realizing how clearly chapter 12 also answers the, answers the question, what are we supposed to do with Jesus? And so um, that's exciting. And so for us to get to jump into it at this point and this way, um, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, also, having put 100,000 steps um, in four days in D.C. while sleeping in a hotel on a couch with high school students, you will be very glad today that the power of God's word is not dependent on the messenger. Um, so um, so in verse, if we're in verse 35. It's fascinating. We have been given all this information, and Jesus is now saying... Listen, you've got what you need to know. You've got the information that you need. We have seen through his authority over nature, his healing of the sick, his raising of the dead. We have heard. We have heard through his word and through the words of witnesses that he is the son of man, the son of God, that he is one with the Father, and that he is I am, the Hebrew name for God himself. 
the witnesses have been all over the map. We have had witnesses who were men, who were women, Greeks, Jews, religious leaders, and nobodies, believers, and skeptics. They, then, and we, now, have sufficient evidence to believe that he is who he claims to be, to believe what John is telling us about it, and if we believe what he's telling us, then we have sufficient reason to be persuaded by the declaration of who Jesus Christ is. That's where we find ourselves, and it's a natural temptation to stall these types of decisions. We put them off. I am naturally a decision staller. Um, That's my natural bent, to reach a final decision. Um, I see no reason to ever rush that. Um, I'm never confident of hardly anything, as in confidence like some of you experience confidence. When I learned years ago reading a book, that once you reached your level of confidence, as high as you get, you might as well make a decision because you ain't going to get any more confident than that. That was a huge insight to me. I get about 85, 90% sure of anything. That's about as sure as I get of something. There's no point in me waiting at that point. I might as well do it. But man, I will stall. All the staff, when I, when I told this the first hour, all the staff members were like, that is a poor Paul has to deal with me, stalling, uh, stalling decisions as long as I possibly, well, let's find some more information. Let's do a little more research. I'd say, now when it comes time to make a decision, I have no problem. Time, make it, done, no problem. That does not bother me to make the decision when it's time. But until then, it, I can stall. Um, my wife is not wired this way. She likes decisions made early. It's made for some great, fun conversations across 25 years as we try to figure out how to make both of those integrate into one person. Um, so this, that's just naturally how I am. We're, we're planning a trip. I can buy tickets. I can get the plan. I can draw the map. I can everything. And at the last moment, we could change our minds. Fine with me. That is not okay with most people. Um, those of you who were here when Pike Weiser and I would team teach at times, Pike is the pastor of First Baptist Church, and this used to be First Baptist Church's South Campus. Literally, and some staff can, can back me on this, and some of the band can, that we would sometimes decide on Sunday morning who was preaching. Um, we would both have talked through it and be like, you know, you take this part, I'll take We did it all the time. You had no idea. Um, both of us fine with that. That's not okay for most people. Um, we're okay with that. It's obviously stall decision, stall, stall, stall. Chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus said to them, the light is among you only a little while longer. That's the emphasis, for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. John's about to teach a little bit on this. He's going to take a section out and actually give a little devotional teaching on what's going on here. And then he's going to come back to Jesus. But what we see from Jesus in this chapter, in these two little sections that we get from Jesus himself, is this statement. It's time. Decision time, it's here. You've reached it. You're running out of daylight The light's not here much longer. While you've got it, look, see, hear, believe. Now, you're running short on time. Night is coming. Don't get caught in the darkness. Having not made the decision, the decision time is now. What do we do with Jesus? Well, we better do it. You may naturally wonder, as I think the the apostles did, why why didn't everyone believe in him at the time? And if he raised someone from the dead, wouldn't everybody go like, Well, I guess I better believe in him then, whether I want to or not, right? I think this troubled the apostles. We see John, Matthew, Luke, others in the New Testament. We see them wrestle with this. 
And they all come to this same passage from Isaiah, the same kind of passage or two from Isaiah as part of their answer to the question. So John is going to explain this to us. They still hadn't believed. Verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now again, John just references these two verses, this one verse from Isaiah, these two lines. But keep in mind, if he's got a Jewish audience, you can't quote something like this from Isaiah without them knowing what the rest of it is. And so as a good Jewish audience, we want to look at the rest of it. Isaiah made a statement that was true in his time, and it's true in the time that John was remembering. Multiple New Testament authors reference this. Isaiah 51, 53, 1. We're going to read through this. John Redfern, just a few minutes ago, read this to us. Um, John 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one for, from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We did not have a high opinion of him. This is the idea. One of the reasons why people would not believe in Jesus at the time was because he wasn't what they wanted. They wanted a celebrity. They wanted someone who's beautiful, attractive, fun, showing all this power, pride, majesty. But that's not who he was. That's not what he was living out. Look right here. When it actually says in that line, like, he, was, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing about him that just drew your eye like, look at this guy. One reason why people don't believe is because Jesus has let them down. He's disappointed what they want in a God. He's, let, he, he's not been what they thought he should be. So they don't believe in him. They don't esteem him. They don't believe in him because they wanted someone else. They wanted something else. I've said over and over again up here, Jesus, Jesus Christ will never fail you, but he will disappoint you because you have standards and expectations in place and he does not promise to live up to them. Often people move away from faith because they trusted in God for something he never promised them and then he doesn't deliver on what he never promised them and then they're mad about it. How dare you not deliver on me the promises that you never made? And we do that all the time. That's what we're dealing with. And by the way, notice way back, back up in Isaiah 53, 1. Notice, believe, convinced by what you have heard. An arm here, the word here means power. You have seen his power, his strength, his power has been revealed. Convinced by what you've heard, convinced by what you've seen. Same things he meant a minute ago. Verse 39, another Isaiah passage Jesus, uh, John tells us, therefore, they could not believe. So because it wasn't what they were looking for, because this wasn't who they wanted, because it wasn't whatever, therefore, they could not believe. Because in another place, or again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, under what reference does Jesus, did God say this to Isaiah? Well, here it is, Isaiah 6 8 through 12, when you come to a passage. This is a tough passage. We don't like this, by the way. I don't know about you, I don't like this. I've, I've always, I've, for years, I was under the impression that the reason Jesus told parables was so people could understand him. Through the power of the Spirit and the training over these years, that feels that way to us. We read it and we go, oh, I see, because of the... But Jesus said he told parables the way he did so that people would not understand him. 
I don't like that. It wasn't time for them to be revealed, to, have, to understand the truth. It wasn't time for them to get it. Watch how this conversation goes between God and Isaiah. By the way, I've just got to tell you, I love, it, it makes me chuckle in kind of a dark, inappropriate way when I see someone in a different version of Christianity refer to themselves as a prophet. Um, now, it's kind of, when you spiritual gifting, always prophecy, meaning to proclaim the truth, comes as one of my gifts that people reference. But every once in a while, someone will be like, so you're like a prophet. And I'm always like, no, no, no. Don't give me that job title. Because I don't like the job description that goes with it. Anyone who claims to be a prophet, I'm always like, did you read it? Like, did you read what that means? Did you read the job description for prophets? Because let me just tell you, buddy, that almost never works out well for the prophets. Um, there, here's, here's what you're like. I wouldn't sign up for that one. Um, so Isaiah 6, 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah's answered, I said, here I am, send me. And he said to me, go and say this to the people. Ready for, ready for Isaiah's calling to the people? Here's the message he's got. It's two lines. Keep on hearing and not understanding. Keep on seeing and not perceiving. That's his message to them. No, no, you just keep on hearing the truth and ignoring it. You just keep that up. You know, you just keep seeing it and not getting it. This will work out well for you. Just keep it up. Go for it. That is his prophetic message. God explains it. In other words, what he's using Isaiah to do is verse starting in Isaiah 6.10, make the heart of this people dull. Hebrew word is fat. Their eyes, their ears, heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and then turn and be healed. Wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want them to turn and be healed. Now's not the time for that. And I said, which is exactly what you would say, let's just stop. So God is telling them, listen, Isaiah, here's what your message is going to do. You're going to go tell these people this message, and here's what their response is going to be. They're going to get more blind and more deaf and less able to understand what's going on. And what, well, you've got to love the Hebrew word here, and fat. Their hearts will be fat, meaning like a big cow that can't move. Like a, a large animal that's so fat, it just can't even motivate itself. That's, that's the idea. If you've ever watched like the 800, My 800 Pound Life or, or one of those type of shows, like any of those train wreck shows that those of us who are only morbidly obese watch in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, right? So, so we go, we watch these shows and, and, and um, um, oh man, who's, Francis Chan, thank you. Um, Francis Chan, said years ago, a couple of years ago in one of his books, he referenced the idea that that must be what God looks down. These people sit in their, they sit in their chair, they're, too, they're so big they can't get food on their own. Like they can't go get food, they can't move. So if you just demand people bring them food. And he said, this, this has got to be times when God looks down on some of us in the church and he sees people, we've been here for years and years and years and years, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, whatever, all that's great, but the problem is we're not burning any of those religious calories. We're not doing anything with this gospel. We're not living out our marriages differently. We're not living out our role as a father or a grandfather or a grandmother or a mom or what. We're not living those differently. We're not whatever. And instead, we're just sitting there going like, no, I, go, I go to church to get fed. Ouch. This is the prophecy against the people of Israel. No, no, you just keep telling them and they'll just get more and more like big slugs. Job of the Christian. Right there, right? <laughs> Except it had been a Jewish person then. But that's the, that's the idea. Make these people their heads. And, and can you imagine, by the way, if you're Isaiah going, what? What? How long am I going to have to do that? How long are they not going to listen? How long? That's exactly the question 
I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie in waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is bad news. This is tough. Keep in mind, though, keep in mind, this is not, our response to this isn't hopeless. Even God's saying, no, no, I want them blind right now because now isn't the time. The time is the question. When is the time? And by the way, we already went through that. Jesus already said Now, it's time. Keep in mind, there are always people who believe. There are always those who do hear. There are always those who do see. So something about those who don't believe that lead them, that are are blind, hardened, hatred, stubbornness, pride, arrogance, foolishness, so long as we embrace these things, so long as this is our response to Jesus is to double down on our own pride, to double down on our own arrogance, to double down on our own self-sufficiency, then we will never hear. We will just grow more and more unable to experience it. People often refer to the judgment of God will come because of cultural sin. We talked about that. There's, there's sin in our culture. God's going to judge us. But I think the Bible is a little more clear that cultural sin is judgment. That because of the, the way people have chosen, they have chosen something other than him, and he says, okay, Go for it. You want to be blind? Be blind. You want to miss it? It's your call. Consider that. The blinding of Samson was a punishment. It is a punishment. As a group, they will stay blind. As a people, they will not hear. God will make sure of it despite the evidence. He gives them that as a group, they will not believe. And I believe there's also a challenge in this, by the way. I do. A little sarcasm mingled in when he says, no, no, go ahead. Say to this people, keep on hearing but don't understand. Keep on seeing and don't see it. So though there were amongst the Jews from the first century all the way apparently back to the eighth century BC when Isaiah was wandering around, a God who will blind and deafen people for the, as punishment for their sin. That does not make me comfortable, but it doesn't mean it's not the truth. However, as is always the case, hopelessness is not the response because there are always some who hear. There are always some who listen. God always reserves a remnant of people, at minimum, who will see, who will hear, who will listen. The prophecies of Isaiah doesn't create hopelessness. It may seem strange to us, because listen to what John immediately points out. We get to that passage, and we're like, wow. John just gave us a little sermon, a little mini-sermon. Just did that. Then John's going to explain it. We go, wow, why would Isaiah say these things? I'm glad you asked. In verse 41, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, meaning Jesus' glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of even the authorities did believe in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, look at that verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw. See, he did see. We see this played out all through John. When you think back to the book of John, have we seen people too stubborn to see? Blindness has been a theme for the whole book. People too arrogant to listen, too self-certain to believe. These are exactly the people that God was prophesying about. Hopefully not us. We have the evidence before us. We can we can put aside what we think God, our judgments on what God should be and accept who he is. We can set aside our own issues and instead 
listen to what is being taught, seen what has been done, accept the witnesses that we've been experienced, and then we can respond. We have what we need to respond. That's where we are. This word glory, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna explain this a little more. Paul and I were talking about it between the services even, even more. And uh, this, this Greek word glory, it's not the common Greek word for glory. It's a different word that, is, that we use in the New Testament is used a little differently. Um, it usually has to do with the, the concept, I'm not gonna go into depth here, it has a concept of opinion. Um, and so having a high opinion of someone is to give them good glory, is to have a high opinion. That would be to glorify them, would be to have a high opinion of them. What is your opinion when we walk away from this point where we are? Notice that, that, that John points out that these, these religious leaders, some of them prefer the glory of man, the high opinion of man, to the high opinion of God. Jesus taught on this a lot, like in Matthew 6. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so they may be praised, same Greek word, glory, they may be gloried by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. If the glory of the high opinion of man is what's most important to you, then you better enjoy it because that's all you're getting. It's not going any further than that. Sometimes God will make a person's name great. That's his job. Genesis 12, he says he's going to make Abraham's name great. 2 Samuel 7, he's going to make David's name great. But and our responsibility is not to make our own names great. That's not our glorification. Is always God's problem, not our problem. It's always, I'm going to explain this a little more. Think about the language in this chapter. This clearly is the correct answer. What are we supposed to do with this Jesus? Well, chapter 12, now that I understand it, makes it perfectly clear. We are supposed to reveal his glory, reflect his glory. That's what we're supposed to do with this. That is the proper response for us, is to respond, to reflect, to reveal, to embrace his glory. Think about Jesus saying what, what a passage Paul referenced last week when he said, when Jesus said, glorify your name to the Father. And the Father said, oh, I have. And I will. That's significant. When Jesus refers to being lifted up before men, this is a reference, at least a three-part, a three-way kind of pun. That he's saying lifted up like, like a cross, and they get that. Maybe he was even near one, maybe pointing. That's, that's part of it. Also lifted up like, like the, the scepter, the, um, the, the staff of Moses was lifted up that had the serpent on the top of it in the desert so that when people looked on it, they were saved. Jesus links himself to that event biblically. And then, of course, lifted up before men, lifted high and lifted up, glorified. All of these are there. This is all through this chapter. So we've had John's little teaching here, and many people reference the fact that back in that, in that last verse, a few verses ago, was the, in the book of John, it is the end of Jesus' public teaching in the book of John. But some of the commentaries also pointed out, well, it is, but then it kind of isn't. Because Jesus declares this, he teaches this, then he goes and hides himself. That's how, remember that's how that ended? Then he went, he left and, hi, and hid himself. Where, how, don't have, no. well, did he just like go around the corner in the temple and hide? Did he, did he sit down in a quiet space? Did he find like a little coffee house and get to go into the back and, and hang out there? We really don't know what this language means. What we, the very next thing, so we see Jesus hide, then John does his little teaching to explain from Isaiah He's trying to help you understand, help me understand why not everyone is believing. And the very next thing Jesus does after hide is what? Cry out. Here's what I think is happening here. I think Jesus is done with his public ministry in the book of John. He's, he's done teaching. It's over. He's dropping the kids off at college. That's what's happening right here. 
This is him shouting out the window as he drives away, okay? And, and if those of you who are old enough to drop kids off at college or at school or something like that, or maybe even at camp, you take your kids to camp, and on the way to camp, you just talk and whatever, like you've got endless amounts of time, and then you see the sign that says you're at camp, and then you start thinking like, oh, I better start explaining this kid how they need to behave at camp, right? And so you start how they need to be at college, and so you start doing it, and the next, next thing you know, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to cram you know, 18 years of teaching into 45 seconds before you drive away, and don't do this, and don't make these kind of friends, and stay away from this kind of problem. And as you're driving away still, you're still kind of yelling out the window like, and stay away from, like as you're, I think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is done teaching, he's all done, and he's finished, and he's hidden himself, and he's sitting there in his little coffee house or whatever, and he's being quiet, and he's hiding away from the crowd, and it's time for him to leave, and when he gets up to leave the city, verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, by the way, whoever believes in me is not really believing in me. It's not just me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. This is a Jewish audience. He's trying to explain the Trinity to a first century Jewish audience here. Not just me, but the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light so the people who believe in me will not remain in darkness. Listen, if anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I don't judge them. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me this commandment what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So you can imagine him saying like, okay, okay, if, if nothing has convinced you so far, then just keep this in mind. These are the words of God the Father who you've been worshiping since Abraham. And he's also told us that's him. But I think for his audience, he's going, okay, okay, this is too much for you, except this. He's already said, I and the Father are one. They're the same person, but he knows his audience. Listen to my words as though they had come from Abraham, from Moses, directly from the burning bush, directly from Mount Sinai. You need to hear this. Don't miss this. And then he truly ends his public service teaching, at least, in the book of John. If you've seen me, if you've not, look, look at his language, whoever believes in me, Whoever sees me, same exact language. This is what you've got to do. Don't be blinded. Don't be prideful and stubborn. Believe in me. You're seeing, hearing, and believing. And this, there's a judgment that comes with knowing the truth. This is hard for us too, but I'll tell you it's of great comfort. Very, very early on, very soon after I really thought that maybe God was calling me into a role to be a teacher and a teacher of Scripture maybe, when I was really still a teenager, um, I very quickly realized how empty that could be. And I, and I really came very close to not doing it. Um, and there was a passage for some reason. I have no idea why I was reading this passage in Ezekiel 33. I have no idea why I was there. Um, but for whatever reason, at that point, I was there. And this is what struck me. Because let me just tell you, the, the sense of helplessness at, that comes sometimes with being a teacher of people is overwhelming. I know many of you are teachers, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You spend hours and hours teaching people and then they go and do stuff that has nothing to do with what you've been teaching all along. It happens on a regular basis, guys, that I, that I get that text or that email or something from somebody, hey, so-and-so has left his wife. And you're like, really? I mean, he's been coming to church for years 
Every Sunday he's heard it. He's, he's been in this, he's been in that. And, and the power of the gospel was nothing to him, to her, whatever. Like, I, I just, it's, it's you, you've, some of you have been there. You've experienced this. It can be really just like, oh well. Now this is, this, the rescue in this for each of us, and this has to do with raising kids, discipling people, whatever, is that at some level, there's only so much we can do. And that's what Ezekiel 33 is about. Ezekiel 33 says, listen, if you warn people, if you proclaim the truth to them, if you're a watchman and you see the enemy coming, and you warn the people that the enemy is coming, if they don't do anything about that, that's their problem. The, the way that God tells Ezekiel this is their blood is on their own hands. But if you see the enemy coming and you don't warn them, then their blood is on your hands. And that's the calling of the watchman. For any of us who teach, for any of us who lead, for any of us who parent, that's our job, is to teach this as the truth to the very best that we can. At some point, they have a decision to make. They have to listen, they have to hear, they have to see, they have to perceive, they have to believe at some point. And that's, that's the, the confidence in this. That's why Jesus doing this here at the end is encouraging to me as well. This final cry out to the crowds. He is making it clear, I am not merely a first century teacher. I'm not merely a moral leader. There is more to this. This is stuff you can't miss. And that is really what finally settled for me, what the response is, and that is glory. So in order to understand glory, I want to look it up. The, the, the concept here and the Greek word that, I, that, 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 that is used here, doxa, D-O-X-A, usually has to do with an opinion. And Paul was talking about in his classes how he's learned that in the, in outside of the Bible it can mean a high opinion or a low opinion, but in the Bible, in the New Testament, it always is referencing a high opinion. And always referencing, this is what you're trying, you're trying to get a, do, a, a glory, a glory from people, meaning a high opinion. Glory, something unusually fine or worthy of honor, something praiseworthy. An accurately positive understanding is, is the idea. Holy, let me, let, me, let me see if I can explain this. This, is, this made sense to me really maybe for the first time in some ways. And, and I have a hard time. There's a word that I can't really wrap my brain around. If you just stopped me earlier this week and said, like, define glory. I think I would have given you a really kind of pretty flowery words, but it would not have shown much understanding. Um, and so as I've engaged in it and going, like, I've got to understand this if I'm going to be able to teach it. Here's what I think now, okay? Here's what I think. So if we take a trait of God's like holiness... God is holy, righteous, morally perfect, good. That's all kind of under the same, pure, holy. God is holy. He's holy like nothing else is holy. He's holy independently of anything else. His perfection and his righteousness and his flawlessness morally is, transcends anything else we can do. That is his holiness. Make sense? Okay. That he is holy in that way, that is his glory. The holiness is what makes him holy. That he is holy like that is what gives him glory. I'll try again. Power. God is powerful, all-powerful, limitless in his power. All power that is, is his, proceeds from him. No one tells God no, ever. This is a, his power is, is his, his limitless in his power. That is his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, if you will, all-powerful. He is omnipotent. That he is omnipotent 
is his glory. The glory is in the fact that he is omnipotent. One more. We'll try again. God is loving. He is love. It's a crazy kind of love. It's an outside of the bounds kind of love. He loves us even though he knows us. Can you imagine loving somebody who you actually knew? (laughs) Can you imagine someone loving you if they really knew you? If they knew your sin? If they knew the dark side of you? If they could listen to the running monologue or dialogue for some of you running through your brain, would they still love you? Be scared to death of you. Run for the hills from each other if we could hear each other what's going on inside of our heads all the time. We're pretty awful sometimes. There's things about us like, I mean, if, if, can you imagine a God who knows us, who knew us in advance, knew what we would be, knew what we would be like, knew our darkest. Here's the thing. He experiences our sin in ways no one will ever experience their own sin. He experiences my sin in ways that my family could never experience my sin, that my friends could experience my sin, that I can experience my sin. He experiences it. I don't know, how much more in in the most powerful way possible. And despite that, with that, he loves me. He loves you. He chooses us with all of that. Who loves like that? Anyone who'll lay down their life for their friend, but someone who'll lay down their life for their enemy, that was us. We were his enemies. Who does that? The answer is nobody but one. There's only one who loves like that. There's only one who could love like that. That is almighty God who loves us like that. That is his love. What kind of a God sacrifices? What? God's no sacrifice. That's ridiculous. This is a God who sacrifices, who loves us like that. He loves us like that. That is his love. That he loves us like that is worthy of glory. That is his glory, that he's the only one who loves like that and can love like that. That is glory. We, find, we, we reflect his glory back to him, and that's all we get to do, by the way. His glory is found in himself. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a funny, I think there's sometimes almost a tongue-in-cheek references to, to God you know, glorifying in us or whatever. The truth is, only, we don't increase his glory. That would be false. God doesn't have 97 points of glory, and then we show up and we sing some songs, and now he has 98 points of glory. We don't, we don't give him glory. We reflect his glory to him. He is worthy. This whole thing, when Jesus references glorifying his name, that means make it unavoidable that people will have a high opinion of you. Make it so that only the most thick-headed numbskulls would be willing to not make you, not to give you the high opinion that you deserve. Glorify your name. That's... That's what he's talking about. How and where do we glorify him? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which many of you probably know, says this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That doesn't mean add to his glory. That means reflect his glory. Embrace his glory. Rejoice in his glory. Or as they're saying it, enjoy his glory This is where we find our rest and our salvation and who he is. And and even this, do we have glory eyes? Do we see his glory in all things? We have the picture. 
I love this, this, this idea. This, this is found on multiple different artists and, and poets and musicians throughout time. This is on Bach, on a piece of Bach's music. SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone the glory. If you're listening to something that Bach wrote, or Handel, who also does that, by the way, that you're, you're listening to something like that, you listen to Handel's Messiah, and you go, that is amazing, this guy was a genius. They're saying, no, I just reflect the glory of God. Any experience you have here is a positive, that's our job. We love like he loves. Why? Because it reflects his glory when we do our best to love. In our pathetic little attempts to love, that is, we reflect his glory. People go, look at that God. When we, when we love, when we, when we do whatever he has called us to do as he has called us, that is what it means to reflect his glory, to embrace his glory. That's, a, that's the idea we're talking about here. Um, do you have glory eyes? This is one of the things that struck me. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Do we get to enjoy that? Do we see merely giant balls of exploding gas? This is what it means to have glory eyes, like eyes that, eyes that see his glory, ears that hear his glory. This is what should be setting his followers apart in some ways is that we experience his glory when no one else would. They, they, they assign it some other meaning and we go, to God be the glory. That's, that's what that is. That's how we, we get to experience this. It's a really cool way to live. Do we just see ex- giant balls of exploding gas in space or do we see the immense and awful potency of a creator God? The ionization of the air when it's lightning and thundering? Or do we also get to experience the creativity of a powerful God? The passage of visible light spectrum through water droplets? Or a sign of God's patience and tolerance with his people? A big stack of stones that's been eroded or the rushing, warring might of the parable of the river of life? Do we see parables everywhere we look in one another, in our kids, in our spouses? Do we see his parable in this that we can live out and reflect his glory? This is the mistake we do when we put, we talk about this regularly. The mistake that we do when we put the weight on Sunday morning is you go, listen, Sunday morning is when I glorify God. I set aside two or three hours a week to glorify God. Sunday morning can't absorb that. You're asking for too much from a morning to be out of your lifetime all the time that you spend worship or serving or in glory, reflecting the glory of God. This should just be one small part of this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do at church, oh wait, it doesn't say that part. <laughs> do all to the glory of God. In the same way, let your light shine before others on Sunday morning so that they may see your good works. doesn't say that. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This glory theme is kind of all over the place. Do we understand all of this? No, of course not. Do we get all of this? No, of course not. That's part of the joy of being ignorant, foolish people is that we get to find new ways to find glory next week. You come back next week on Easter and we get to celebrate the glory of a God who sacrifices in a new way. We're always learning new things. It's one of the glories of being human is that we're so dumb that we get to learn new things and new experiences and go, look at this. Wow. Week after week, his word reveals to us new things to glory in him, to embrace his glory. 
That's why we don't get it. It's why we argue. It's why we don't all have the same theology necessarily precisely. It's why we don't all have the same Bible study techniques because we're all learning and growing in the midst of this. The response that Jesus makes clear in chapter 12 is this. Glorify him. Mary had embraced his glory with all she had. The crowd had done it waving palm leaves and crying out to him, which we get to celebrate this afternoon. As soon as we're done here, head straight. we're gonna be heading straight out there, right over there to the baseball field. Part of this, again, is the opportunity to glorify in him together in a community to enjoy that. So if you want to stay for that, you're invited. I want to pray that God will integrate us learning to glorify him every day in our lives, in every part of our lives, everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever it is we do, done in the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand with me if you will and let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your goodness and we're grateful for your love and we're grateful for your power and we're grateful that we get to embrace and enjoy and engage with the glory of who you are. Thank you, Father, for the goodness that you are worthy of our high opinion, that we can glorify in you and be right to do so. Thank you, Father, for your good gifts. We pray this in your Son's awesome name through the power of your Spirit. Amen.